Um, so thank you all very much for coming. This is the third of the IG Patel Memorial Lectures. Um, IG was a very special person, uh, a national civil servant of extraordinary distinction, an international civil servant of, of great distinction, an academic, and a much-loved, respected director of the London School of Economics. And to many of us here today, a, a dear friend and a wonderful man. So it's uh, very uh, pleasure. It's a great pleasure and privilege to be associated with uh, IG's name in this lecture, and I'm very lucky to be the IG Patel Professor at the London School of Economics. We have today with us um, members of IG, IG's family. Uh, his wife, Bibi, his daughter, Rahana, his brother, Dilip, and other members of IG's family. And it's a great pleasure to have them with us today. Um, Amartya, special friend, uh, very close to IG. And it's wonderful, Amartya, to have you here today for many reasons, but including that of your close friendship with IG. Um, many people or many countries claim Amartya Sen. Uh, he spent some of his childhood in um, uh, Bangladesh and in Burma. Um, he is, of course, an Indian citizen and born in India and uh, educated at present Presidency College in Calcutta and taught at the Delhi School of Economics. So he's claimed by um, Burma and Bangladesh and India, <clears throat> by the UK, uh, where he spent uh, uh, some very productive years, um, and uh, of course by United States, where he lives and owns a green card. So there are uh, many countries that claim IG. Now here at the LSE, we're not bothered by nationality, citizenship. That's totally irrelevant to intellectual activity uh, in terms of who you are. Of course, international affairs is an extremely important set of issues. Um, but we do care about uh, our own. So there are many universities that claim Presidency College, Delhi School of Economics, where Amartya was a uh, professor, London School of Economics, where Amartya was a professor, Oxford, where Amartya was a professor, Cambridge, where he was a student and master of uh, Trinity College, and, uh, of course, Harvard. But the greatest of these is the uh, LSE. <laughs> and Amartya, you're welcome home. This is where... Uh, Thank this you. is where you really come from, <laughs> in case you're in any doubt. The, I would also um, like to recognize the Reserve Bank of India and the State Bank of India. Uh, we have the director, local director general of the State Bank of India with us as uh, key funders of the uh, IG Patel uh, chair and of the Asia Research Center and, of course, of this activity today. We're very grateful. And it's also a privilege to have with us today uh, the uh, Indian High Commissioner. Um, Amartya is a Bharat Ratna, the pearl of India, uh, for reasons which we all uh, recognize. So Amartya, it's just wonderful to have you with us uh, again. Last time you were here, you spoke about um, really moral philosophy in various shapes or form. 
Um, you have a whole range of subjects, and they usually are interwoven in various different ways. And the subject today is child undernourishment as a social predicament. Amartya, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, well, I'd first like to say how delighted I am to be back at uh, home. <laughs> and um, also thank Nick for his very kind introductory word. Because generally I feel extremely privileged in being able to give this year's I.G. Patel lecture. I.G. was a close friend as well as someone whom I deeply admired. A warm, affectionate, an extremely wise person on whose advice I came to rely over many decades. He was superb company with whom it was always fun to talk. Professionally, he was an excellent economist, a great administrator at the highest level, a deep social thinker, and perhaps most relevantly here, at the LSE, a visionary director. The director's job at the LSE is not always an easy one, and I was very impressed to see not only that his leadership was much appreciated and praised, but also that even the criticisms that he received often came in a warm voice, urging him to project himself more, not less. To recollect an incident, I remember being very amused when my friend Jean Dres, who was then teaching here, pointed out to me a graffiti in an LSE toilet that said in large block letters, Speak up, director. People want to hear you. I.G. had a very gentle voice, and he was sometimes hard to hear. Shouting comes easily to many of us, but not to I.G., I remember thinking that I would love to have a graffiti urging me to speak up because people want to hear me more. But since that has not happened, or to put, it, to put a positive gloss on it, this has not happened yet, <laughs> I take second-hand pleasure from the admiration and affection that my friend I.G. received from his students as well as colleagues. Before I get on with the subject of this letter, let me also lecture. Let me also thank the London School of Economics, especially my friend Nick Stern, for inviting me to give this lecture. Lord Stern is, of course, the IG Patel professor, as he mentioned himself here, and I'm delighted that IG's legacy is in such secure hands. Finally, I'm absolutely thrilled that my old friend Alaknanda Patel or Bibi, as we know her in the family, is here today, and so is IG's and Bibi's wonderful daughter, Rihanna. And uh, there is also IG's brother here, uh, and they have all crossed various seas to be here for this occasion to honor IG, and there are other members of the family too present here. I end by thanking um, all of those who have come, especially for the lecture, and for all of you here in the audience for coming to this event when we remember IG and also try to talk about an economic and social problem that I would claim would have interested 
ID. I've chosen to talk, as you know, on child undernourishment as a social predicament. I begin by asking why this theme? The battle against world poverty had many different components. Some features of poverty are more difficult to conquer than others. There's accumulating evidence in the world that the battle against child deprivation in general and child nourishment in particular is in some ways the hardest fight that human development has to undertake. This is particularly disturbing since continued deprivation of children had more momentous consequences on the well-being and freedom of people, young and old, than almost any other deprivation that characterizes poverty. There has certainly been considerable success in the world in, war, in the war against poverty. The often repeated generalization that the poor are getting poorer is not exactly true for the aggregate picture in the world. A great many people have crossed the poverty line to be no longer classified as certifiably poor in terms of low income. The success in this field has been particularly remarkable in China. The proportion of people below the poverty line in China has, according to official Chinese estimate, fallen over a quarter of a century from being close to 20% at the beginning of the 1980s to below 3% by the middle of 2000s, last decade that is. In terms of the World Bank's poverty uh, estimate, if you take the, the poverty line of 888 per person per year, the reduction in the same period has been no less dramatic, falling from 65% to 10%. This is indeed a remarkable achievement, even after making some allowance for data problems which actually do exist. Uh, in which, in, and in that success, there is a great deal to admire. To a much lesser extent, but still noticeably and significantly, there has also been considerable crossing over the poverty line in India as well. And there are successes in the reduction of income poverty in many other countries across the world. The picture is by no means uniform, and given the uneven success in poverty removal, and also because of growing population, the number of poor people in the world had not actually been dwindling. Indeed, for the world as a whole, the number of poor people, that is those who are placed below the poverty line, has, at least according to some estimate, been growing rather than falling. To the countries lagging far behind in this attempt, and there are some, there is much to be, much to be done to reverse this particular adversity, and there are lessons here that come from the most successful countries in the reduction of income poverty, most notably China. These lessons are important for the world, and there is good reason to champion what can be learned from China's success and those of other regions. But even when success in the form of reduction of income poverty has been possible, there are problems that have proved to be much harder to tackle, even in China and more so in India. Child undernourishment is one such problem. Indeed, the, possibly the principal one that I would put in that box. 
even though China has addressed the problem of child undernourishment better than India, there too the problem remains to be adequately tackled. The long-standing deprivation of the children of India has remained extraordinarily grim and unchanging, so I'll begin with that. India has one of the highest incidents of child undernourishment in the world, not just in absolute number, but even proportionately. And despite the progress in the field, in some of the Indian states, there's no evidence in recent years to indicate that there has been any major progress in reducing the proportion of underweight children for the country as a whole. And this despite the fact that there has been overall progress in India on the income side of the story, even after taking into account the inequalities involved in the distribution of income. In a smaller way, this, alas, is true of China as well. Measures of undernourishment are, of course, notoriously difficult and are quite un often unreliable. I won't rattle on a whole lot of alternative competing esti estimates. But putting together all the data that we have, it seems clear that the picture remains grim in China of child undernourishment for sections of the Chinese population, and very grim indeed in India for a larger part of the Indian population. There's no victory that can be encountered in the bat that can be announced in the battle against child undernourishment. Indeed, now it's, it is now altogether clear that even when overall progress um, in, in, in reducing income poverty is reasonably strong, this does not um, get readily translated into adequate nutrition for children. We have to ask why this is so. I would regard this to be a central issue of development economics today. We must ask what can be the reasons behind this dissonance between income poverty and child undernourishment. Why is it that the success in tackling the former does not readily translate into triumph over the latter? I would suggest three factors that deserve serious attention. First, perhaps the most important, and in some ways the most obvious reason, for the apparent dissonance relates to the fact that even when the proportion of people below the poverty line is dramatically reduced, there remain families below that line, often well below that line, and their needs demand more immediate attention even as the battle against income poverty in general is being successfully conducted. Indeed, in some ways, it becomes particularly necessary to pay attention to the deprivation of the population that remain income poor in a generally successful war against income poverty, because the dwindling number of the poor may generate the false perception of success that is delusory and may prevent any general anxiety about those millions of people left behind. The success of poverty removal are standardly measured in terms of the average picture, and many people are unfortunate enough not to share that average success. The role of high and rising food prices can be quite crucial 
in making the undernutrition problem worse. And to a great extent, this has happened in, in India in very recent years. I was talking with uh, Bibi Alaknanda Patel just before the talk about how some of the necessary commodities like rice and dal have, uh, have grown in price. This is, um, even as I was writing the lecture, the, the picture seemed to get more and more grim. When increasing food prices is, ad is added to the problem of stagnant income of a large section of the population, the incidence and resilience of undernourishment can be very substantial indeed. The second reason for the distance between success in the reduction of income poverty and the removal of child deprivation is the perceived urgency of some demands on family money other than nutrition. In the long run, catering more fully to the nutritional needs of the children may be much more important than any other demand for money, uh, which may appear immediate and may look urgent. The conflict between immediate urgency and long-run important tends to favor the immediate over the important in many cases. There can be some conflict here also, and this is an, a difficult but a very important issue and not sufficiently discussed in India, uh, or for that matter in China, uh, conflict here also between the priority of adult goods, even of smoking and drinking, and the role of children's goods, especially of enhancing the variety of food consumed by the children that could be important for a balanced nutrition going beyond the conquest of basic hunger and calorie requirements. Smoking, incidentally, is particularly widespread even among the poor in India and even more so in China. It's really just staggering how these, what these figures are. And there isn't, I think there's, well, there's some concern about it in India, but I think not enough. And there's very little concern about it in China, which does worry me. Third, one of the problems, the exact reach of which is hard to assess, is the lack of adequate nutritional knowledge. Health studies around the world may have made many medically established results well known in the professional circles, and yet it would be unrealistic to expect that these biological connections are adequately known in each family, especially when the families have social disadvantage of one kind or another, such as inadequate education, or insufficient exposure to contemporary literatures, which prevent dissemination of a sophisticated understanding of what is needed. There is much more knowledge in the world than is put into use in day-to-day -day decisions in normal families, and the problem can be much more acute for families with educational and other social handicaps. For all these reasons, there is need for paying specific attention problems of child deprivation. Even though the need is less acute and less widespread in China than in India, there is still commonality in the nature of the problems in the two countries, which gives relevance to somewhat similar instruments for dealing with the special problems of child deprivation, especially nutritional deprivation, and on that I'm going to concentrate quite a bit of my time. So what the problem 
um, uh, the, the problem child, uh, what the problem of child nourishment demands is not merely strong progress on the income side, that will of course help, but on its own it could not be sufficient, I'll have more to say on this presently, but also systematic state public intervention in the field of food and nutrition. So what are the instruments that we can use to tackle this adversity? Two general means that have been much discussed in the development literature, including in my own previous work, for example in my book Development as Freedom, and my joint work with Jean on this field, I, I, particularly my book India, uh, with Jean Dresden in my joint book India Development and Participation, published in 2002. Uh, we have discussed these two means quite extensively. The first is employment creation for poverty removal, and this can be particularly effective in tackling continued penury of very deprived parts of the rural population. In India, an important step has been taken in this direction by a national employment guarantee scheme, to a great extent uh, led by the intellectual insights of Jean Dres himself, and it has already begun to show some success in breaking the hold of resilient deprivation of both income and food for parts of the deprived rural population. The second classic route is, of course, subsidizing food, and it's an approach that has been used over many decades now in India. Obviously, having cheaper food makes the nutrition problem that much easier to handle for those who have access to those cheaper food, to a rationing system or, or some other method of distribution. There are well-known rewards as well as problems, including that of coverage and possible seepage, in making extensive use of this route. And while I will not concentrate on these well-known measures in this talk, I want to discuss other uh, things, I would argue that their efficacy can indeed be quite important in dealing with the child undernourishment. So though I'm not talking about employment and food subsidy, they are very important. It's the allocation of time doesn't reflect that. It's just that these are old problems. I want to discuss some newer ones. But I also have to argue that we must go beyond them since their successes, while not inconsiderable, uh, have not broken the grip of child undernourishment in India and I believe will not on their own. Are there other ways in which the problem can be addressed? One of the instruments that has become something of a political issue in India, with some qualified success, is the provision of cooked midday meals in schools. There was a forceful public agitation in India over a number of years, and in agitation in which I was personally involved and very proud to have been involved, in making schools serve cooked meals to all primary school-going children. The political agitation was a part of the right to food movement in India. I should explain that midday meals are not an Indian innovation. They have been used in Europe for centuries and elsewhere to make schools more attractive to children and to feed them better. In fact, um, this is part of the English schooling system. When I have young children here, 
I remember that schooling, school meals were part of dietary supplement when they were going, when I was teaching at LSE in Oxford and lived in London. Dinner ladies were very important. And I, I remember my son Kabir when, when we were taking first one of the early journeys to India when he was hungry. He wanted to catch the attention of the stewardess and went on saying, dinner lady, dinner lady. <laughs> Could I? <laughs> so I think that's a very important uh, European heritage that we should remember. Um, they have, um, the agitations um, about midday meals were to a con considerable extent successful. In response to a public interest case, even the Supreme Court of India expressed its support for the right of Indian children not, to go, uh, not only to go to school, but also to have cooked midday meals there. Many states in India immediately argued that they did not have the funds to make this possible, since this was a state jurisdiction subject. There are indeed financial difficulties that several Indian states actually do face. Consequently, when the central government ultimately accepted the necessity of providing cooked meals to all primary school children in India, it also had to take on financial responsibility for making the states meet this necessity through financial assistance to varying extents. And it happened some states in India, notably Tamil Nadu, already had good program of providing midday meal to all primary school children. Indeed, Tamil Nadu has pioneered the entire experiment with school meals in India and with quite a remarkable success. I think of my friend S. Guhan, who was very instrumental in that as, as secretary of, at that time of the Tamil Nadu government. Um, very much something which he worked out. Not surprisingly, as in every field in India, the achievements of different states are immensely variable in the successes and achievements um, of school feeding programs. And yet, whenever a school meal program has been implemented across the board, there have been noticeable impact on the population involved. In fact, cooked midday meals served in schools provide a number of interrelated and far-reaching benefits, especially in the Indian conditions. And it is worth recollecting the, the big reach of that one program, uh, even if briefly. First, schools are an excellent point of delivery to those in the greatest need in the primary schooling age, and so the possibility of reducing that deprivation to policy to giving meals to every school child had a very strong case. Second, loss of physical fitness and mental ability due to undernourishment in childhood, which is a direct channel challenge to the objects of education, is a major predicament of the Indian people, and the adversity can be dramatically reduced through school meal, and it could be seen even as an extension of the school's job of educating people better. The physical and mental potential of many children remain substantially under-realized in India, and school meals can make a contribution here of some substance. Third, school meals increase the attractiveness of going to school. Attendance is a serious issue in India because student absenteeism is quite large in parts of the country. 
It's not surprising that empirical studies have shown that attendance tends to be very favorably influenced by the provision of school meals. Um, fourth, the attention span of children from the poorer families is often severely restricted by the fact, and this we have actually observed in our studies, um, uh, by the fact that they come to school on an empty stomach. Feeding not only supplements schooling, it can actually contribute to the effectiveness of the process of teaching itself. Fifth, if school meals are served in a cooked form, rather than students being given the so-called dry ration, for which there was a strong advocacy, even from the minister in charge at that time, and that had to became another political battle in which some of us had to be engaged, dry ration distributing. But instead of, if you don't give it in dry ration, which people take home, the cook with the meal not only has the advantage of guaranteeing what, what, how it's they're being used, but also the gender bias in distribution within the family um, is, is curbed by it, which sometimes favors boys and girls if they take the rations home. It also appears that the provision of meals for school children has a particularly favorable effect in releasing girls from family work to go to school. Sixth, the experience of eating together in schools without differentiation of caste, religion, class or ethnicity is also a contribution towards building a more united people. Being schooled together is itself an egalitarian Experience and eating together in schools can add greatly to promoting a non-discriminatory outlook. Not surprisingly, the main resistance from, from parents to the school meal program, and there have been resistance um, that makes all children eat together the same food, has often come from well-to-do families who argued that they could feed their children better than what the shared cooked meals um, gave to all children in a non-discriminatory basis. And there was also some question about eating together. There might be some truth in, in the fact that many of the richer families could provide better meals than what was generally provided to all. And yet the idea of eating together the same food, no matter whether the children in question come from a rich or a poor family, also has some real social value. The resistance still remains, but its force had been less acute uh, over the years in regions where the practice of eating together the same food has become standard and unremarkable where the program has been successfully implemented. There's considerable evidence that has accumulated by now that the school, program, school, school meal program is a success in India wherever it has been effectively implemented with clear indication that the expected positive results have been realized even if to varying extent, depending on the effectiveness of the implementation. The charitable trust called Pratichi Trust that I was privileged to set up in 1999 using my Nobel Prize money, uh, there was one trust in Bangladesh concerned mainly with gender equity and one trust in India. Um, the Indian Trust had undertaken some empirical studies on this, particularly in the state of West Bengal and little in the neighboring state of Jharkhand. And even though the work is not yet completed, 
the indications that I've seen now, the, the latest uh, statistical um, uh, results that have emerged from these from this survey are clearly favorable to the view that the expected benefits of school meals are indeed being realized quite substantially. However, the reach of the school meal system in India is still quite limited. There are limitations of three different types. First, the content of food is still quite poor, and while having some cereals, some pulses and vegetables, and an occasional egg, is still a huge benefit for many poor families, the coverage of this meal has to be expanded when that is possible. Second, the school meal program has not come into regular use still in a number of states, and there is a huge regional asymmetry on which I spoke earlier. The need to expand the regional coverage is now imperative. Third, there's also the issue of the coverage of children at different ages, involved at different levels of schooling. School feeding programs have been ma mainly used in elementary primary schools and in some regions for preschool children when there are, when the, uh, there are arrangements for that, typically organized through what are called the Integrated Child Development Services, ICDS. Nutrition is certainly crucial at these levels, and they, have to, uh, they, uh, they need to have full regional coverage. However, before long, it will be important to move on to the later stages of schooling as well, such as secondary schools, since the nutritional deficiencies in, in India are quite widespread over the years of a child's life. Once it's recognized that economic growth alone is not going to eliminate the problem of child undernourishment, we have to think of the long-run widespread use of public intervention in this field. Now, here I'm going to make one of the economic points, one of the, um, I mean, most of what I'm discussing is common sense, but one of the points of some economic significance which is often missed. The point to bear in mind in understanding the process of economic growth is that even when income growth does not adequately conquer undernutrition in general and child undernourishment in particular, it does increase the resources that are available for public expenditure. Indeed, it's quite remarkable that the Indian experience indicates that when growth of GDP is at 6, 7, 8 or 9 percent per year, public revenue has tended to grow much faster, like 9, 10, 11 or 12 percent per year. And what the market cannot do on its own can be done by the state by using the resources generated by the market there's an important issue of a complementary economic strategy here. The general issue was discussed by Jean Dres and me in a very early book in 1989 called Hunger and Public Action. But um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's relevant in the Indian context. It, it came to me, I think, to Jean also as considerable surprise and vindicating what we are trying to say, of course. It should be obvious that many of the benefits of child feeding programs in school are of less relevance in China, since the problems addressed are not as acute in China as it is in India. And yet there is a somewhat shared need to do more for child nourishment than happened automatically from the increase in family income. 
And oddly enough, unlike in India, there is, it came to me as a surprise, no public system of school feeding in China. So the, something that the European experience contributed to the Indian policies hasn't happened in China. In this context, it's particularly interesting to see that the relatively small programs of nutritional improvement of boarding school students in poor rural areas in China, it, it, this is all first letter capital, this is technically, this is a particular scheme, which was initiated by the Chinese Development Research Foundation, CDRF, in Beijing in 2007, um, with which I've been associated as an advisor, has observed a significant difference between the nutritional and health levels of children covered by the program and other Chinese children in boarding schools who are not so covered. Indeed, the CDRF has examined the achievement of special nutritional intervention not only in physical condition, on physical conditions and physical abilities, but also in academic performance, and even, though this is much harder to study, in mental health. There is evidence, accumulating evidence, of different, uh, that direct nutritional intervention makes a difference in each of these respects. So even though the problem plaguing the nutritional challenges faced by Indian children may be more acute than those of Chinese children, direct nutritional support can actually play a similarly positive role for many children in China as it does in India. One of the problems in confining nutritional intervention to children already in school is that the preschool children, whose nutrition is extremely important, are left out of the initiative. Somewhat surprisingly, again, China does not have any scheme like the Integrated Child Development Services, ICDS, in India in the form of a countrywide public initiative to reach, the to reach preschool children to reverse nutritional neglect. Even though India's overall record in early nourishment remains quite poor, in those areas, for example, again, Tamil Nadu, but a number of other states too, in which ICDS has been successfully implemented, and we have studied that again with Pratichi Trust, it has made a substantial difference to reducing the undernourishment of very young children, from which there is something to learn, not only for other states in India, but I would submit also for China. Here too, the nutritional impact can be seen to be can be seen both in physical development, including stature and capability here, that is in the preschool intervention, in, in, uh, physical development including stature and capability, physical capability, and in mental achievement and mental capability, particularly in the development of intelligence and alertness, as the results of CDRF um, studies indicate. Indeed, it's in the preschool years that the growth of the brain is fastest, given adequate nutrition, and the long run as well as the immediate impact of better nourishment of early childhood can make a gigantic difference to the lives of children and the adults they grow into, even though there has not been any significant empirical study of the long run impact of nutritional intervention in early childhood in India. For one thing, the ICDS had not been operating long enough to allow any long-run effects to be 
systematically, statistically studied, there is evidence from some of the successful implementation of early childhood support in nutrition that this kind of intervention does indeed make a fairly quick impact on the physical and mental capacities of young children. And if that finding is combined with extensive medical evidence from around the world that early development of um, uh, that early development of the mental and physical capacities of children does have a strong influence on the cerebral and physical abilities of people later in life, it would be, reason it would be reasonable to expect that early childhood intervention is making a substantial difference to the lives and capabilities of people, especially poor Indians, both in the short and the long run, in those parts of India where the implementation has been taking place. More direct studies will be needed in this field in India to sort out the complex empirical picture clearly, more clearly. But given the profound importance of the issue of early childhood nutrition, this is certainly a subject of considerable importance and some contingent hope that a deal can be made, uh, that, that a dent can be made in the dreadful record of India in the nutritional deprivation of children in particular. Even in China, not just in India, there is evidence that there is considerable problem of growth retardation, and again studied by CDRF, and incidents of being underweight among rural children in some areas. Uh, compared with children of similar age group in urban areas. The Child Development Research Foundation has also begun a pilot program in this area under the banner of Early Childhood Development in Poor Rural Areas. It just started last year. The, uh, and that project includes both nutritional support and preschool education for very young children. Since I'm connected with, uh, with these uh, efforts, I, I will be visiting them again next year, next, this fall. And, you know, on a future occasion I can see how the progress is going on that. When the results of this intervention is fully analyzed, there will be a great deal to learn from it, both, for, both in China and, uh, and in India and indeed elsewhere. The logic behind extending nutritional and other support from school children to preschool children is easy to see. The reasons that lead to nutritional and other deprivation of school children in poor groups, often related to both lack of nutritional knowledge and lack of income, among other social handicaps, would tend to apply to young children as well. Exactly the same reasoning applies to preschool children too. The main difference comes bet uh, between supporting the school children and extending their support to preschool children does not lie in any difference in the causal conditions that lead to deprivation in the respective age groups. The difference lies rather in the easy feasibility of intervention in support of school-age children, which is relatively simple to undertake through schools compared with the difficulty of reaching the lives of preschool children. However, once a problem has been diagnosed and the needed lines of support have been ad identified, the implementational issue can be taken up involving small or large departures from traditional routes of intervention. This is certainly a hugely important area of practical research, not just for India and other countries that have been less successful so far than China in the removal of poverty, but for China as well. 
I'd learn, I turn now to a problem that may be even more difficult to tackle than the nourishment of school and preschool children, going back to nutrition of the fetus before birth. The extension of nutritional and other deprivation, prevent, deprivation preventing intervention from school-age children to preschool-age children going backward would certainly be a major step forward moving downward in age. But the downward move of intervention in age need not, indeed should not, stop there, since there is a big problem of deprivation even before a child is born, related to the fetal phase in the evolution of life. This is a subject that has been much studied in the context of deprivation in India, but I do not know enough about research on this subject with Chinese data and indeed I believe they probably don't exist, to ascertain whether the issue of fetal deprivation is a factor of importance in China or not. Indeed, uh, uh, India and South Asia generally have an exceptionally high incidence of low birth weight babies reflecting fetal deprivation. The causal antecedent of this phenomenon can be traced largely to the widespread prevalence of maternal undernourishment in India. But moving forward from high incidence of low birth weight to its impact, it appears that this is an important explanatory variable in the widespread prevalence of child undernourishment in India, and it relates ultimately, of course, to the broader issue of gender bias against the interests of women. This diagnosis is confirmed by the cross-country repression as regression carried out by Siddiqur Osmani, who was a student of mine here many years ago, and Oleg Bhargav, also another student from LSE many years ago, in their attempt to explain inter-country variation in childhood malnutrition. Their cross-country statistical examination shows that if the set of explanatory variables included only the standard determinants of child malnourishment, such as income, immediate food intake, health care, and female education. Uh, female education is something both Raw and I, Rodriguez and I have done much to emphasize, but even if you take all that into account, but left out the extent of low birth weight, then there remains a sizable, unexplained excess of child undernourishment for South Asia, which is attributed in this cost country statistical study to the regional dummy variable, to it being a South Asian. However, and here the positive and here is the positive part of the finding, as soon as low birth weight is itself introduced as an additional explanatory variable, the dummy variable of being South Asian loses its significance altogether in explaining child undernourishment. That is there is no unexplained excess left anymore. This does strongly suggest that the low birth weight is probably the major re reason for South Asia's higher incidence of child undernourishment, which is, of course, as I mentioned earlier, um, uh, is, 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 is uh, very remarkable in, in comparative perspective. And I'm trying to argue that it really is traced back to gender bias. I've not been able to find enough empirical studies in China to be able to form a view 
on whether and to what extent this issue is of relevance to China. I've not been able to find any data to be able to conduct this work. Possibly it's not, since low birth weight is not as frequent in China, that we know, as in India, nor is maternal undernourishment as common in China as in India. However, the thing to examine is whether there are deprived sections of the Chinese population which may suffer from similar problems. Chinese gender bias, which is quite strong, tends largely to take a very different form and is now largely reflected in the high incidence of sex-selective abortion of female fetuses, which is much higher in China than in India. The abortion of female fetus involves a very different type of gender bias, and it's in itself it does not tell us anything about fetal maternal, you know, maternal deprivation and fetal undernourishment. The issue of fetal deprivation in China, which would apply to particular parts of the population if it applies at all, has not received the kind of systematic examination that it has received in India. And it would be important, and whenever I go to China I emphasize the point, to check whether China, in, in China there is, in addition to the sex-selective abortion, any general prevalence of serious fatal deprivation on a systematic basis in parts of the population. Hopefully, this would prove to be not the case. But we have to check the situation empirically before we can be quite sure about this. As it happens, to go beyond this, fatal deprivation has been linked in India also to higher prevalence of cardiovascular diseases later in the lives of people who were born with low birth weights. This connection has been investigated in a pioneering way by a medical uh, researcher, a doctor of course, Professor David Barker and his collaborators in the University of Southampton, working with English data over a long span of time. They have shown that the pernicious consequences of low birth weight actually extend far beyond the disabilities related to poor nutritional status of children and they impact people's adult life as well. The Barker group found a clear link between low birth weight and a number of adult ailments that have not been traditionally linked to undernutrition as such, these are based on English data mostly from Southampton, namely hypertension, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, obstructing, obstructive lung disease, renal damage, and even some forms of cancer. A question that arises in this context is whether the effects of nutritional deprivation in the fetal stage can be eliminated by greater nutrition after birth. Oddly enough, this seems very hard to achieve. And indeed, exactly the opposite consequences may result from such efforts at making up for fetal deficiency. Indeed, very depressingly, the studies based on English data indicate enhanced health risk when low birth weight is combined with abandoned nutrition after the first year of life. Adults who were born with low birth weight but enjoy relative affluence in their adult life are more prone to these diseases than those who remain under 
nutritional stress even as adults. And if they also happen to enjoy overnutrition in the late childhood, then they are in even greater danger of catching these diseases in adult life than those who remain undernourished throughout their childhood. There are, by the way, there's a lot to be said on this, which I'm skipping, but there's a paper of mine jointly with Siddiq Osmani, which came out, I think, um, do I have a reference here? I think it was the inaugural number of, of a journal called Biology and Economics. came out about 10 years ago, but I think I don't have a reference to it here. Uh, but it's easy to trace. That was... Um, 2003, I think. Yes. Is that what you have? Yeah. Where did you get it? <laughs> it's in your talk. Oh, in the talk. Oh, is there? <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Okay, thank you. I thought that this is some kind of magic. Yeah. Okay. Um, there are many critical issues to be resolved before we can entirely accept this picture. But the empirical picture that has emerged from the English data that have been studied seems to be full of odd connections and impacts that need to be followed up. Well, I must stop here. The analysis of child deprivation in general and child undernourishment in particular is one of the most urgent areas of development study in our time. The problems are more serious in some countries, such as India, than they are in others, including China, and yet there is a significant relevance of this analysis for China as well. And in some ways, the mechanism for public intervention in nutrition, supplementing what happens in the market economy, seems to be less rather than more organized in China, dealing with things like um, pre-school intervention and school meals. There are lessons from the experience of the better performing Indian states, not only for other states in India, but potentially also for parts of the Chinese population as well. Uh, and uh, when I was there last in China in October and November, they're very willing to look at that evidence. Indeed, there's real interest in that subject. One general conclusion is that we must take the investigation to poverty and of ways of means of its removal far beyond the income-based investigations. Indeed, child undernourishment is one of the critically important areas of public policy research today. With the help of Indian and Chinese information and the benefit of medical research with English data, we have also seen the long reach of the undernourishment issue. Older children, younger children, and even fetuses fall within the relevant domain of necessary investigation today. To conclude, if there were a graffiti today, whether in an LSE toilet or not, demanding that I speak up on some issue of policy importance, the broad issue of child undernourishment could sensibly be my chosen field for speaking up. I believe I.G. Patel would have approved of that choice for reasons that I have tried to discuss. I end by remembering I.G. again and reiterating my immense admiration for him as a scholar, as an intellectual leader, as a policy analysis, of course for me as a friend, and last but not least, as a wonderfully warm and sympathetic human being. There have not been many like him. Thank you.
Omarcha, th thank you very much. And uh, we've seen today why um, Omarcha is regarded by many, including myself, as the um, most extraordinary social science thinker of our time and the leadership in understanding and the leadership in policy come together in a very strong way. Um, Amartya, we have now about 20 minutes for discussion, so I hope that you will have um, questions and try to keep them short so that uh, as many questions as possible um, come. Lady right at the top there. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Sen, for your talk. Um, I've been thinking recently about the World Food Programs system, which reflects the models that you talk about with uh, feeding in schools. And I know you spoke about a sort of state-led program. And I wondered if you could comment on possible problems that a non-state-led program could cause in the longer term. So in the case of the what, World Food... What do you mean by non-state-led program? Well, I mean, talking about the World Food Program, so I know that there are partnerships that the World Food Programme builds where it can, but I've been wondering if there are long-term problems in terms of NGOs providing these services or agencies um, in terms of when the state is able to take that over and if you could comment on yeah. that. You know, I take a fairly Catholic with a small c approach to that because I think we get a lot of help from many... I mean, we need the help of the state, which is part of the point I'm arguing. But we also get a lot of help from non-state organizations. Uh, I've had problems with parts of the FAO because of their greater focus, but it's to a great extent changed. Initially, when my book, 1981, Poverty and Family, was published, I was uh, comprehensively backed by the FAO at that time. In fact, when I was introduced to the director of FAO, uh, he told me that this is the worst book that he has ever read in his life, which seemed quite a distinguished achievement, because I think he read many books. <laughs> uh, but I don't think they take quite that view. But I think people recognize that food is, uh, is the question of how people can get hold of food, how they can establish what I call entitlement over it is really quite important. Um, I don't use the word entitlement very much, but that's what we are talking about. And I think many non-state organizations have played a big part. I'm very proud of the fact that for two years, when I was privileged to be the honorary president of Oxfam, we were not only doing, uh, of course, food distribution, we were also doing employment, we were doing political um, advocacy of these things. And I think the world is, a, is much richer because of the presence of the non-state activists. Now, it is possible that things might get in each other's way, it's possible, and it's possible sometimes when people are misled, there may be, there may be difficulties. But taking the rough with the smooth, I would think that having a suspicious attitude about, which I'm not accusing you of that, you asked me a question, and I'm answering it, saying that I think on the whole, there are reasons on the basis of the records I've seen um, for thinking that we don't have to rely only on the state uh, in these things. I, even this trust I set up with my Nobel money is non-state activist, but we've been totally involved in this issue. So I would say, yes, um, if, there's a reason, if there are reasons for concern, we have to be aware of them. But by and large, I would have thought that the benefits that we get from a kind of multi-dimensional, rather spontaneous 
way in which intervention tend to come um, work out reasonably well, and I'm in favor of strengthening rather than weakening them. Amarty, just to follow on that, there is an issue of um, the right to the meal, and that's something which could be determined only by um, the right the right to the meal, the right to be uh, to have the school meal. The delivery of who delivers, of course, is, can have many forms and adding is also welcome, but the right to get it, it if I understood, could be determined only by, uh, as a right, only by the state or the, either the centre in India or the, the local state in a, as a federal structure. Well, there I don't quite agree, I think. Um, um, I think as a legal right, yes, state and in particular the legislature has to be involved in it. But as a human right, I mean, human, I mean, you know, my book, which you kindly refer to, Idea of Justice, there, there are two, and primarily one chapter, chapter 17, exactly on that. That human right, which um, came into our dialogue in a big way in the 18th century, led particularly by Mary Wilson Croft, but also Tom Paine, played a very big part in making the idea of right a kind of cutting-edge issue that we can use in order to pressure what should happen either legally or by um, policy changes which are not legal but you know they they're good policies they're not legally mandatory but pressing for them so I would say the dialogue of right is very important and that's the way I mean I've been involved mainly because of Lord Red in the right to food movement uh, among other rights, um, the, and we tend to use it not so much as saying immediately you legalize this, but as a pressure point. And no one is more clear on that than Mary Wilson Croft's book, 1790, long time ago, <laughs> and arguing why recognizing it as a right uh, it's, it's, it's her first book, which is 1790 itself, uh, The Vindication of Rights of Men, and the second book, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, singular there, 1792. And these were both to use the, um, the huge appeal of the idea of right, which of course has legal ancestry, but once that has been established, then to have a multi-dimensional, that relates to the previous interesting question, Catholicity about going for it, and as Mary Wilson Cup said, not just a question, you can't eliminate the women's deprivation by just changing legislation. You also have to go to media, also education, what is discussed, what is politically pressed. So I think the right, I'm delighted you raised that issue, because the getting the right is a very important thing here. Now, it's very important in India, China, there is a problem because it got mixed up with the issue of democracy and, and the human rights watch issue, on which has been in a sense of tension with China. Now, um, uh, you know, I have a view on that, though, um, uh, you know, you try to do what you can in each country. And I'm delighted that some of the institutions in China, never using the word right, but treat it as if it is a right that the children are being neglected, something has to be done. And ultimately, what really turns on, and that's again in Mary Wilson Craft thought, is 
what we can do at this time in the best way, bearing in mind the short-run impact as well as long-run. And I think the right to food is a big part of that story. Uh, there's gentlemen, some up there and there's some uh, there. I'm going to go up and down. Gentleman at the back there. Is it? Spatial justice is very difficult between no. upper story and lower story. Okay. Um, woman at the back, but anyway. Uh, I don't know if I've jumped in instead of someone else. Where are you? I think, yeah. But thank you very much. The chap much. in front of you go next. That's all right. Okay. Don't worry. Thank you very much for your presentation and for the Thank conversation, you. both of you. My question follows on very closely from what you've just been discussing about rights. And, and in a country like India or also a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa where the access to education for girls and boys is very different, I wonder, Professor Sen, if you have a f suggestion for how nourishment interventions could be extended to those who can't access education. Well, I don't have a formula, but, um, you know, this is a... This is a subject where, I mean, this relates very much to the kind of issue that came up in dealing with Nick's question. Namely, this is a subject really for agitation a great deal. And I think in India, the fact that women's issues get much greater attention, they don't get often credit for it, but the feminist movement and women's movement have played a hugely important part in bringing vision into, into that. I can tell you something on that because I've, I've been... I'm trying to hammer on the women's rights issue for a long time. But when I first began talking about it in the 60s, it was treated as um, uh, completely as an eccentricity, as um, one of my friends said, well, you recognize we like you, we call, think of it as an amiable eccentricity. But eccentricity nevertheless. Uh, but that's not the situation quite now. And I remember still, and if I may be nostalgic, time when there were... I had only one sympathetic listener, and that was a judge named Leela Seth, Vikram Seth's mother, the novelist's uh, mother. Uh, uh. She was always present there, cheering me along. Uh, and, but now that's not the case, and I think the women's movement have played a part. The same issue comes up in the context of, of Africa, too. And a number of the NGOs connected with women's interests uh, have been very concerned with that issue. So I would say that the first the first one, the first step in solving any problem, and it's probably half the battle, is to identify what the problem is. The second step is to do something which makes those steps, those, you know, those survival conditions challenged. And I think nothing happens without public agitation. I'm a believer in in state's role, but I'm not a believer only in the state's role. The state doesn't often do anything unless it's pushed. And therefore, I think the question that you're raising requires ultimately some state action too, but it's not a question of formulaic state action. It's a question of what we can put on the agenda of politics and discussion and media uh, on this. And I think the media can play a hugely important part in this. And one of the problems in in Africa, of course, has been that what began as a early development of powerful, forceful media uh, came to very tragic state in the middle. I was my first visit to Uganda was 1963. I was giving lectures in Makaroe College. I remember writing in an Indian paper how impressed I was with the, the robust fearlessness of the Ugandan journalists, and there was other African journalists too in this meeting in this Nakaroi College. But by the time 
the, my paper was published in India, but within a year of that, half the people I dined with in that meeting were dead. So I, and, and Africa was turning a page, moving away from freedom of press and, and a confrontational politics, which is absolutely central to that. So that is actually very big. And you know, as you know, in some countries it expanded a lot, in other countries not. And I, I can't, don't think Nick will give me time to go into this more. But it's a very big question that you're raising. But uh, if, there, if the way to Carnegie Hall is practice, 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 the women to the fulfillment of rights is agitate, agitate, agitate. So there's a gentleman just there. I like. Yep. Thank you. Um, people upstairs. Yeah. Alex Reese from Save the Children. Um, Where are you? I'm here. Okay. <laughs> Professor Sen. Um, it's, it's linked again, which is why I was hesitant in putting my arm up again, um, which is I think that we would certainly agree that school feeding is, 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 can be very useful, but again, it's about going back to the, the problem that you're trying to solve and where there are limited resources that are available at a state level in India or a nation state in, in Africa and what possible solutions that there are. Um, and there are the three that you mentioned. Um, employment creation, subsidizing food, and school meals, and there's, there's a whole a wider range of, of, of social protection mechanisms. It seems to me important, particularly given the importance of, of, of tackling malnutrition early, and as you mentioned, pregnancy, conception through till the end of second, the second year uh, of life is an incredibly important period. So there are those that are not in school because they're quite they're poor and they can't afford, but there's also those very early, very young that we need to be investing in as the generation coming through. So as we're looking at the kind of policy responses, how, how would you rate the school feeding vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, other, the other opportunities, the other policies that could be made? Yeah, I think the, the if, if, you know, as I hope I made clear in my talk, that I was not talking only about school feeding. There's also ICDS program, which is Integrated Child Development, uh, schemes and the services, and these are preschool, of course. And if you take West Bengal, um, the 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 feeding part of the ICDS is a huge success. That gets a lot of people there. It doesn't cost that much money. You know, I think there's an issue, since I've never been able to be particularly monolithic in my politics. Let me uh, take this opportunity of commenting on your things to say, uh, to some extent, I did that already, about the multiplicity of agencies, what the picture that is. Now, compared with the time when I.G. Patel was in charge of economics, and he had a huge restriction, and it's often, not often recognized that when there was a decision at the political top level to go for uh, possible change under Nassim Rao, the first person that Nassim Rao had thought of was actually Ajipatev, because he was known to be not in sympathy, and I've talked with him many times on that. So there was a need for change. That required, in many ways, make much greater use of the market economy. That was really quite important, and I think it was important to recognize that it may generate high growth rate, which it did, uh, after the initial tumble, it did. But idea never had the opportunity of having that much resources, because once the growth rate came in, as I was mentioning, when the country goes five, six, seven, eight, nine percent, the public revenue is getting seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve percent, really fast. So it's generating a huge amount of revenue. Suddenly, about two or three years ago, 
it became clear in New Delhi that the resource constraint about which people were always talking doesn't quite apply in that form anymore. So that's the role of the market, that's the role of the state, because the public revenue could be used by the state. But the state may not do it unless it's pressed to do it, because it's always a dressing question. Is every question is, and I, I, you know, I, I quarrel with my, I mean, I come from the left, but my fellow left are upset that I was being critical of the left party spending so much time on such issues of what I think are rich people, people like serious issues, petrol prices, or for that matter, Indo-US nuclear deal, and not worrying about basic undernourishment, basic illiteracy, and other things, that there is, that the left parties have a part to play, which they should, which they haven't played as much as they, uh, as they, as they could. I mean, they are potentially the right part, the right part of the political spectrum. To need a kind of uh, cooperation of the left parties, pressing for it, the government doing it, using resources that the market is generating, and that requires trade and expansion. Now, the point is that often it comes based separate. China, up to 79, did a lot of state intervention on health, education, everything, but it had a totally counterproductive economic system. When the economic system changed, the move towards market with a great success in agriculture, gigantic, and fairly good success in industry, they also suddenly abolished everyone's health care um, entitlement. And that one go, either it was, everything was anti-market and then everything became pro-market. And as a result, at one step China went from a Canada-type system to the US-type system, which in this case was not an improvement. And the result of it was again got in, stuck in a different problem. Now China is emerging out of it, and there is much greater interest in what role can state can play. But then there's also the question we are discussing about what role can people recognizing rights and so forth can play. So I would say that you have to look at it this way, but the state plays a very big part in answer to your specific question. I've rested a bigger observation or wider observation on your question. Uh, I think the state can play a very big part in preschool nutrition also, and it's not that hard to organize. And in fact, the, whatever studies we have done indicate that uh, the results could be quite quick and quite dramatic in preschool feeding. There are a lot of other things, gender attitude, which is a very difficult issue. There's the whole question of education, women's role in life, and all that. We need feminist movement, we need women's movement. All these have a kind of role in a multi-institution structure. India is fortunate, it's a democracy. It had nothing against any of these multiplicity of institutions. Uh, working with each other in producing the kind of uh, overall effect that we are trying to seek. Um, lady right at the top there. Um, India, China and Brazil, I mean, these are fast developing economies and they produce a lot of food, I mean, high yields of uh, food grain crops and in spite of that they carry on suffering from severe rates of undernourishment. I mean, why does that happen when a country has the income and it has the food, but somehow it just doesn't translate into people eating that food? And I mean, I've seen in Northwest India, grain rotting away and tribal children starving in Orissa. I mean, it just doesn't... I, I'm beginning to worry about it. I thought that was my talk, uh, answering that question, why that happened. I had three different things, that there are a lot of poor people left behind. There is an issue uh, about the priority of adult goods, 
I think you have to look at the complex picture. You're not going to get a formula which in a one sentence will tell you this is the answer. Uh, it is a complexity of factors which I thought I tried to discuss. That's what the talk was about. And therefore the question now is the next one, namely what can we do about them to remove these, uh, these hindrances. So that's the way. I'm glad you reminded but, uh, and that allows me to emphasize that that's what I've been talking about and very much hope that people would note that merely producing more food or more income doesn't solve the problem. We have a bigger issue to address at the same time. Last question. Gentleman right at the back there, please. Thank you, uh, Professor Sen. You've placed uh, this undernourishment right up there on the progress ladder of humanity. My question is, and you talked about the state as having a big role to play. Now, how can forces external to the state intervene? And if forces external to the state cannot intervene. Well, what forces external to the state? Yeah. What hope do we have? Well, you know, we are all external to the state. Uh, you know, we, every time you and I write an article on Niktas, uh, he used to be the state, but no longer is, uh, <laughs> then that is an external to the state trying to influence the state. That's how we react. We say, look, we don't like what is being done. We want to change that. So that's how we, the external to the state act on it. You know, I think the real difficulty is that there are some people who absolutely don't like state, and they would say, look, get it over to everything else, everything by the market. Others would say, they let state do everything. I'm trying to argue that actually none of these are, um, you know, sensible approaches. The state can enormously uh, help things, as I'm trying to argue, it can also hinder things. When I first returned in 1963, if I may recollect, um, I've joined Delhi School of Economics and I went to IG. I wanted to keep a bank account abroad, in fact, in, in Lloyd's Bank in Cambridge. And I was told that I have to get in Reserve Bank of India's permission. So I sat there for about two hours opposite a high officer, mainly because Dr. IG Patel had sent me that I got an attention but he was then answering questions, and one of the conversations I absolutely loved, when she's saying, Madam, you need um, foreign exchange to go and see your sister in Canada. We are very sympathetic to that, but you say that you saw your sister last year. Now, the government of India is very keen on sister seeing sisters, but every year is a bit excessive. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we have moved a great deal from the days when the state's role in, in, in controlling our lives seemed li large. But at the, at the same time, those who take the view that the market could do it uh, wouldn't be able to explain what happened to the Chinese health crisis in 79, wouldn't be able to explain why we are in the grip of totally counterproductive uh, over-expansion of private uh, medicine at the poorest level, which um, run by crooks and, and uh, um, as well as, uh, uh, um, as um, um, uh, there is a term for it I won't use, who don't, uh, who don't really know much knowledge, uh, have much knowledge in medical thing, but pretend. I've seen people being given within our study 
being given saline injections for malaria. You go to the NHS, not NHS, it's local state, and they said, we can't do it, we are overworked. I can give you a private doctor, he goes to a private doctor. This, uh, this peasant produces a large amount of money, big part of his income for the child's malaria, gets a saline injection and comes home. I think we need the state badly, but we also need a lot of other institutions. So anyway, I, I, what I'm, if there's one paper, part of the paper is about nutrition, in fact, that's the subject. But uh, the part of the thing is the multi-institution world, which we have every reason to celebrate, protect, argue for, and help prosper. And so your question fits into that. There's a lot that extra-state activists can play, not necessarily against the state, but also in collaboration, and sometimes against the state, both these, depending on what the circumstances are. It's that general perspective that I'm trying to present. Thank you, Amartya. Um, thank you all again for coming. Thank you to um, IG's family particularly, Bibi, Dilip, Rahana, and uh, all the members of IG's family who are here. I think that uh, IG would have welcomed and celebrated and participated and cross-questioned, um, and he would have been very happy to be here. And uh, it's a privilege for all of us to be here today, Amartya. Thank you so much for your thoughts. Thank you so much for absolutely splendid lecture. Thank you.